Let me start by saying, uh, give you a bit of survey of global wealth, right? I'm not sure how much you're into global wealth or into wealth at all, but 50, 15 wealthiest countries in the world apparently owns up to 85% of the global wealth. Only 15 countries owns 85% of the global wealth. And Australia is one of that 15, including US, UK, China, South Korea, Canada, and all the big nations. How about the rest of them? The rest of them, there are about 180 nations who only made up to 15% of the world's wealth. This means if you're living in one of those countries, in the top 15 countries, Australia included, it is almost certain that you're wealthy by the world standard, regardless of your income. Almost certain you're wealthy. And in the last couple of decades, I, I look at the, the charts from about 1960, but in the last couple of decades alone, the, the trajectory of wealth of the rich and the poor, uh, not only that the rich getting richer over the, significantly over the last um, 20 years, and certainly in the last year during COVID, the rich are getting richer, but it is quite sad to see that the poor are actually getting poorer at the same time. So not only that the, the wealth gap are wider because of the rich getting rich, it's wider because the poor are getting poorer. So that's, that's just what it is today. And the point is, well, the question is, why am I saying all this? Uh, this is not an economic class, definitely not a finance or anything like that. Um, the reason I'm saying all this is because if we are not careful, uh, we could be in danger of getting too comfortable because we are in one of that top 15 countries. If you are not careful, we could be in danger of getting too comfortable. And with our, too comfortable with our existence, with our life, and as a result of that, we, our focus and our priority become so skewed, so off from what the Bible taught us or teaches us, then it needs to be corrected in a major way if we are not careful. So unless, of course, if you're going through right now, if you're going through a life-threatening illness, you may be, I don't know, uh, or if you know someone close to you who are diagnosed with, with a terminal illness, um, it is very likely, if, if, if that's not you, it's very likely then your focus and your priority in life today is very narrow. It's just given because the fact that we're living in a wealthy country our focus and our priority is very different if we would have been born, say, in Sudan today and living there and working there. What, what do I mean by that our focus and priority can be so narrow if we are not careful? What do I mean by narrow? Well, by narrow, I mean it focuses simply on getting the maximum comfort of our present life of our first 100 years of our life. Narrow, by narrow, I mean not your focus for five years of your life, but your first five, 100 years of your life. 
If your focus and priority today is only looking at the first hundred years of your life, that's what I mean by narrow. So now, spend a minute, you know, thinking about this in your head. What is my priority? What is my focus? Is this focuses on that 100 years of your life? Some of you are under 20. Some of you are over 30. Some of you over 50. What is your focus right now? Your priority in life? What are you doing with your life right now? What are you doing day in, day out right now? What is in your mind right now as you wake up in the morning? Is it about the first hundred years of your life? If it is, then I have to say, your focus and your priority is narrow. In context of what we read today in Daniel 7. Okay? So we, we've been going through, if you just join us today, we've been going through Daniel, the book of Daniel, for the last six weeks. Hence, now, week seven, Daniel 7. One chapter per week. If you miss and if you want to catch up on this, it, it's on our YouTube. I'm, I'm, I'm not that great of a speaker. I'm, I'm just a, you know, a regular guy, so there's no need to go out there and search for it. Okay? There's a lot of great preachers and speakers out there. Um, but if you want to follow along, you can. It's, it's on YouTube. But there's nothing great there. I'm just warning you there. Uh, so don't come back to me and say, yo, I'm so disappointed. I, I went and listened to 40 minutes of it and it's the worst time, uh, waste of time, right? So don't bite me. Um, but we're on the week seven, on Daniel 7. There, there, there's a logic to this. We, we don't just plug out one of, the most one of the most difficult passages in the Bible and talk about it. That's, that's not what we are about, Okay. We're not about, we, we don't lift it up intellectualism in this church, but we just get, happen to get to the here, and next we're going to, God willing, we're going to talk about Daniel 8, right? So Daniel 7, if you've been following along, Daniel 1 to 6 is very easy to follow. It's stories, it's narratives. We love story. we love to hear about Daniel, and, and if you've been Christian for a while, you would heard story about Daniel's in the lion's den, uh, Daniel's three friends, even though their name is so hard, you would remember the names are Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into the fiery furnace, right? Even if you haven't been in church a long time, but if you were in kids' church, in Sunday school, you would have heard the stories. Uh, but now we, we're shifting gear from Daniel 7 to Daniel 12 onwards. We're shifting from narrative to what we call apocalyptic writing. Now, just a bit of warning, in this kind of writing, you'll hear a lot of, of uh, symbolism, a lot of visions and dreams. It's so out there uh, that it's no wonder some people avoid reading and try even attempt to understand what this, all this means. So there's that danger of not caring enough, but at the same time, there's the other danger that is caring too much that you read too much into it. Okay, so the balance is important, getting the point is important, but there's a danger as well for reading too much into all these visions and dreams. Okay, so to help us out, I'd like to split it into three sections today um, by way of uh, uh, three headings. The first one is devotion, Daniel's devotion. The second one is Daniel's dream. This is about Daniel's dream, you see. So Daniel's devotion, Daniel's dream, and Daniel's deity, Daniel's God, Daniel's deity. 
So the first one, Daniel's devotion. Let's look at the opening verse. This set us, you know, give us kind of clue where, where, when is this happening. So in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So the opening verse helps us understand when the, when the event took place. It was during the reign of Belshazzar, which we met in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Belshazzar had a vision, a terrifying vision in Daniel 5. There was writing on the wall. And by the end of that chapter, Belshazzar was killed. So it was terrifying to, to see that vision for Belshazzar. Uh, and Daniel delivered the interpretation bravely, boldly. Now, in, in the first six chapters, we, we see how Daniel was interpreting dreams and visions. It was someone else's dreams, someone else's visions. But now, from seven onwards, it was Daniel who had dreams and visions. And it was his dream who needed uh, interpretation. Now, we've seen that so far, Daniel was very good. He's really good. Like he's, during Nebuchadnezzar, he was like the second man in charge. Even Belshazzar, the king who does not like him, make him the third ruler after him. He's that good. And however, we now come to a point where Daniel's However good he is, he cannot interpret his own dream. He's helpless to, when it comes to his own dreams. He didn't know what to do with it. So let's, let's jump ahead to 15 and 16, verse 15 and 16. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. This was the king who had dreamed before. They were anxious and fearful. Daniel was brave. But now he said, this, my spirit within me was anxious. Visions of my head alarmed me. He was actually fearful of his vision. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. He was the one who interpreted dreams and visions of kings. Now he said, tell me about my dream and visions. So he told me and made known to me the interpretations of the things. Two things to say about Daniel in this particular thing that we just read. First is, about Daniel's inability to interpret the dreams and vision. And secondly, Daniel's lack of confidence now. Um, he is now anxious and alarmed. He is now no different to King Nebuchadnezzar, who was fearful and scared, and Belshazzar, who are fearful and scared of their vision and dreams. He's just like one of them now. Very different. Uh, what can we learn from this? Well, first, well, God can use Daniel in an amazing way to serve pagan kings in his days, he's now rendered useless when it comes to understanding his own. So he who was confident in the presence before the kings is now anxious himself. What is this for us? What, is it, what kind of message is this for us today? Well, let me say this. One thing, it's easy when it's about other people. When you hear a sermon, this is why when your husband and wife, you're sitting in church, when you hear a good sermon, you nod your spouse because you say, that's for you. You know? Uh, I know you don't do that. I sometimes do that. Um, 
when I was sitting. Like, we, we have that tendency. Even when you don't do that, you think in your head, I just wish that friend of mine listened to this. He needs this. It's the same as Daniel. It's easy sometimes when we hear God's word, especially God's rebuke, that we hear it for someone else. We rarely want to hear it for us. And now God is speaking to Daniel about him. Uh, it's now getting real. It's not easy anymore because it's now about Daniel. It's no longer about King's vision or King's dream. It's about his dream. So my question for us is this, in light of what I've been saying so far. How are you living your life today? As you wake up this morning, what was your focus? What was your priorities? I'm not asking about the immediate focus and priority because I know some of us probably woke up late and said, man, we're late for church. Let's rush. Like, you know, my, my house was chaos this morning, like rushing and stuff like that. Perhaps yours too. I'm not asking about that. I'm asking about the bigger priority and focus in your life. Why do you get up every morning? Why do you do what you do? Are you living for God or for yourself? You can, you can just make a list of what your priorities and focus are and you can deduce whether you're living for yourself or you're living for God. Perhaps you, you are even proud of what you're doing for God, okay? So these are more spiritual people. They say, oh, yeah, I live my life for God, uh, especially a preacher like me, a pastor. I say, oh, I live my life for God. I'm, I'm a pastor. I left my job, my high-paying job, and, and to, to move a state and become a pastor. For, for you, Lord, for you, God, it's easy to say, to see it in that way. But I, I can, or you can, just by looking at it like, Somehow, I've become proud of what I am doing with my life for God. And perhaps God has even blessed you much with what you do in your life, with your career, with your study, with your relationships, with your family. God has blessed you abundantly. And like Daniel, God has been with you all along. Everything's been good. You pray for something, God bless you with what you pray for. And, from, and, and like Daniel, uh, from, from youth, he was taken into exile from his home in Jerusalem to Babylon in exile from youth, from very young. And by this stage, he's, he's no longer young. And all along, God was with him. Now, much older guy now, in Daniel 7, he finally realized that he cannot be proud of what he can do or what he can accomplish, even though... He's doing it for God. It seems. Now, but there's, proud, there's pride in Daniel's that we may not notice, which I will uh, say later, see if we've got time to, to look at that. If you look at, if you look at how Daniel deals with interpreting dreams and visions from Daniel 1 to Daniel 6, there's a growth of confidence and pride in Daniel. And second thing I want to say is about this is Daniel's devotion, right? This is the first point, is Daniel's devotions. Uh, along the way, Daniel has changed. In from chapter 1 to chapter 6, not only his age, but his devotion to God has changed. Let's look at, let's, let's flash back to chapter 1, verse 8. This was Daniel when he was still young, um, new in Babylon, in exile. 
But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. He told the people, the, uh, the commander or the, the one who served them, say, I, I don't want to defile myself with the king's food. Give me vegetables. I don't want the wine. Give me water. He did not want to be associated or pledge allegiance to the king. He said, I don't want to eat the king's food. But later on, in chapter 10, Daniel 10, so jump forward a little bit now, Daniel looked back and said, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. This gives us an implication that once upon a time, Daniel would not defile himself with the king's food, but now that was a distant memories. Now he would happily eat the king's food. This indicates, this verse indicates that Daniel no longer has issue eating from food, the food from, from Cyrus at that time, chapter 10, Cyrus' table. Perhaps once upon a time, you yourself... Um, Read your Bible every day. Um, I don't know how, you know, we, how long you've been know Jesus. Some of you are very young. Some of you have uh, known Jesus all your life. When if it's, you've been following Jesus for a long time, you can flash back the time, the first year, the first five years you follow Jesus. You need to turn up in church every second day, you know. Whatever meeting the church has, you are there, Right? If you're a man, even women's meeting, you're there. You're there having set up, you know, preparing. You know, I'm going to serve the women, right? You're there every second day. You, you read your Bible, you pray, you pray and fast. You do all those things. But now over time, you see like, well, yeah, I still love Jesus, but it's not so intense anymore. With the change of circumstances, right? You're no longer single, in those days, you were uni students. You can be in church every day, and it's fine. You got the time. Now you say, well, now I'm married. Well, now I've got kids. I've got limited time. How about your reading of the scripture? Well, you know, I get up in the morning. I have to prepare lunch for my family. I have to do this. I have to do that. What, what is that you are not doing anymore compared to when you first love Jesus and come to love Jesus. And there's a shift with Daniel, you see, in his devotion to God. And over time, Daniel's confidence in, in his ability, his own ability, his pride, has grown to a quite dangerous level, you see. In Daniel 2, when he was to interpret Nebuchadnezzar, this was the first uh, account of Daniel being asked to interpret someone's dream and vision. It was King Nebuchadnezzar, this is in chapter 2. Let me read for us in 17 to 19. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to his friend. Right? This is Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their Hebrew name. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek the mercy from God of heaven concerning the mystery, this mystery, the dreams, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar has so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. It was at the beginning of his career. Remember, do you remember your first interview for a job? 
you know, pray to God, you fast, God, let me help this job. I need this job. Ten jobs later, you're so confident, you walk in through the interview, you just tell them all the great things that you've done in your life. Say, they have to hire me, you know. Look at my resume. And let's, that's what happened to Daniel. By the time um, Daniel speak of uh, interpret Nebuchadnezzar's second dream, we don't read about Daniel seeking God in prayer anymore for meaning and interpretations. When he gets to chapter 5, when he talked about Belshazzar, he was like immediately rebuking and telling Belshazzar the, what's the meaning of the writing on the wall, on the spot. He's so angry uh, for being looked down upon. He has grown so prideful that he's no longer take the time to seek God for guidance anymore. And this is the great Daniel. This is the great Daniel. How about us? How about you and me? The little guy, the little Daniel. If it, it could happen to the great Daniel, it could happen to you and me. So Daniel's confidence comes at not without a cost. His confidence grow, his pride did not come without a cost. It comes at the expense of what? Of his dependence on God. Your confidence, your success today could come, could come at the expense of your dependence on God. You become so self-reliant. And that's one of the perks, right? Being lead, to live in a wealthy nation is that we take a lot of things for granted. You turn the taps, you expect water to come out. You turn on the switch, you expect lights to come on. We, when, when it doesn't, that's, we, we, we freaked out. Even when, you know, once upon a time, internet is not always on, let me tell you. I still remember a time when I was in uni when internet means you have to hear those buzzing sounds. Try to dial in, right? And then someone picked the phone, pick up the phone at home, and then the internet's cut off. Today, when I get a message from Telstra telling me on such and such day for six hours, there'll be maintenance on your NBN line. I was like, how am I going to do work? We take things for granted because we're living in, living in a wealthy country. And at the expense of our self-real, at the expense of our dependence on God, we no longer pray to God. Before we go into work, like, God, help me get to work. That when I get to work, I can, say, I can serve you, I can glorify you. We don't do that anymore, do we? We expect when we switch on the car, ignition, it will start. Or when we go to a train station, trains will be running to take us to work. We no longer pray about those things because we take those things for granted. We become self-reliant at the expense of dependence on God. And that's what happened to Daniel. However, God has his way, doesn't he? While Daniel may be confident in his own ability to in interpret someone else's dream, now God makes sure he cannot do so with his own dream and visions. He was afraid, he was alarmed by these states. 
So God has a way to humble us, just like He humbled Daniel. So look back. Were you once upon a time dependent on God and now not so? Were you always been relying on God to come through, but now not so much? Because you somehow figure it all out. You made everything in order. You have everything lined up so well for you. You have the right routine. You have the right job. You're married to the right person. You have the right kids. You have the right family. You have the right car, reliable car. You live in the right city. I remember a story that was told uh, by a missionary in one country in Africa where he said every day she has to pray that the water would turn on. Because that means if, 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 if the water does not turn on, that means going to the toilet, it's a lot of work. Every day, and, and this is, and then decades later, uh, she moved back to America. And she was asked whether it is okay to pray for parking space. Some of you pray for parking space, right? You, you drive around Chadston looking for parking. I hate Chadston, by the way, for parking reason. One time I was there for like an hour looking for parking. Maybe just I don't know where to find parking. And I, I, I don't pray for parking space. So this lady who's been living in Africa in that city that basically prays for everything. He said like, when, when you're in that kind of place, there's no other way. You got to depend on God. You got to pray for everything. And then when decades later, when, when she moved back to America, she was asked about this. Do you pray? Is it okay to pray for parking spot. You know what she say? How else would you find a parking spot? Of course, she's joking, but the point is this. What, do, what you do in your prayer life shows how much you depend on God. What is the content of your prayer? Oftentimes, the content of our prayer are the things that we think outside of our control. Everything else we have in control. So, in other words, a lot of, most of our life is in control. Most of our lives, we do not need to pray and depend on God about. Only small portions of our life that we need to. But God has a way to humble us, to bring us back, to show us that, hey, despite the illusion that you are in control, you're not. And in Daniel's case, Daniel has a vision and dream that he was so alarmed and he cannot interpret. How was your life when you first met Christ and how is your life today? You see, we need to know, we need to understand that movement in our walk with Christ is not obvious. Whether it's moving towards God or moving away from God, oftentimes it's not obvious. Most of the time it's not obvious. Just like if when, when you, are, you are embarking on a new diet or a new uh, exercise program to lose weight, it's not like you're going to be 100 today and then you embark on diet and, and, um, and exercise and the next day you are 80. It doesn't work that way. It takes discipline. And same with our walk with God. When you're moving away from God, it's drifting. 
It's not like one day you love God, you wake up the next morning, oh, I don't believe in God anymore. It doesn't work that way. It drifts slowly from one thing after another. Now, you, back in the days when you're a student, you pray to God for a spouse, for someone, you know, that you will marry and spend the rest of your life. And now you, you're married. You say, I don't need to pray about that anymore. That's tick. I don't have to pray for a spouse or for my spouse anymore. Unless there's a flaw in my spouse, then I pray about that. For God to fix her or him. And then what do you do? You say, oh, God, give me a good job so I can buy a house. And God give you a good job. What do you do? You don't pray for your job anymore. You say, God, give me children. I, I want to start a family. And you plead to God, maybe for you it's hard to have kids. And you've been praying and praying and praying and seeking God. And you cry before God. And then God gives you a son, a daughter. Before you realize it, you don't pray for that anymore. What else don't you pray about today that you once pray for? It's a drift, you see. It's like when you are sitting on a boat in a calm river, sleeping perhaps because it's a beautiful breezy day. A few hours later, you wake up, you realize you are so far away from the shore. And you didn't realize it. Why? Because it was drifting slowly. That's the same with us in God. Any living thing grows or dying. Any living things, either they are growing or they are dying. So if your relationship with God today is not growing, it's dying. If it's not pulling closer to God, it's drifting away from God. You cannot stand still. You cannot. So if you look at your life, is your life disciplines, if your life devotion to God, walking closer to God or drifting away from God? I have to rust a little bit now. Daniel's dream, second point. Daniel has a vision of four terrifying beasts. And you can, we, we read that. And I'm not going to read in detail again. I'm going to read bits and pieces of it. Especially the fourth beast, that is to say, the most dreadful of them all. Okay? So let's look at that in verse 7 and 8. After this, I saw in the, right, in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. It considered the horns, and behold, there came among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. What is the meaning of this four beasts and its horns? It's the big million dollar questions. I'm just going to say it quickly. This means kingdoms. The beasts mean kingdoms. The horns mean kings within those kingdoms. Okay? End of story. That's what it means. Now, um, the angel of God explained to Daniel in this way, verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. What does it mean? It means king and kingdoms, human king, human kingdoms. That happens here on earth. Now, because of that, many, many scholars have spent their life 
try to understand, try to map out these four beasts and its horns to which kingdom and to which ruler. Okay? We're not going to do that. Uh, you, you can read that. If, if that interests you, go ahead and do that. I, I'm not interested in those. I don't think... Uh, because there's so many speculations. It could be just anyone. It could be any kingdoms, anyone, right? Some, some are more closer than the others, but it will not bring any benefits to us. Whether you know which person. Uh, some say, oh, you know, the last one, that little horn, the, the worst of all, back in the days, they would say, these are uh, Antipas, the fourth. And then Nero, the emperor. And then Genghis Khan. And then what else? Hitler was named as well. Mao Zedong was named as well. Even Kim Jong-un was named as well. Idi Amin was named. Pol Pot was named. So we're not going there. Uh, however, we know this represents human kingdoms and human kings, these four beasts. They're going to arise from earth and rule people, and they're going to be dreadful. The fourth one is going to be dreadful. They're going to be bad. They're going to oppress God's people. That's what we get. And that's important for us to understand. As to when and who they are does not matter so much, in my opinion. Now, so Daniel said, what does it mean? The angel explained, well, in, in verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Daniel wasn't satisfied. That was too light. Some of you may be, well, Pastor Ferdy, you know, your explanation, that's too light. I want to go deeper. I want to know which era, which king, right? So Daniel wasn't satisfied either with the light answer, and he pressed on for more. Let's read from uh, verse 19 onwards. Then, this is Daniel, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, Daniel said, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And then about the ten horns that were on his head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, that seemed greater than its competitors, companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints, with God's people, and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. This is important. We may not need to map out who are these kings and these kingdoms, but this bit here is important. And then this is, so Daniel pressed on, asking for more, and Daniel, uh, and the angel of the Lord explained to Daniel in verse 23, the next verse. Thus he said, this is the angel speaking, as the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down and break it to pieces. And as for the horns, the ten horns, out of this kingdom, Ten kings shall arise. There will be ten leaders shall arise in this kingdom. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the other ten former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. 
and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hands for a time, times and a half a time. Now, every generation that read this scripture would interpret this to be their generation. Okay? That we are living in such time where this little horn ruled and devoured God's people. Right? The same. Uh, at the end, say, he shall. So these kings, he shall speak words against the Most High. He will, he will put down, it's like, who is God? Like, you believe in Jesus? Really? They will, like, look down and, and mock you. Right? And what do they say? And he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He will oppress believers, it says. God's people will be oppressed. He wear them out. He makes it hard for us to worship. He makes it hard for us to live out the scripture. He said, what you believe there is intolerant. If you do that, we're going to persecute you. It's not on. And what it says there, and shall think to change the times and the law. So the law of God, they want to change. Let me give one example. It's very, the reason I picked this example is because it's very relevant for us where we are today in this context. The Bible says this, that marriage is between a man and a woman. There come a time where that will be challenged. It says here, and shall think to change the times and the law. It's like, no, who are you to tell us that marriage is between a man and a woman? They want to change. People want to change. They all challenge it. This is why when people read this, they'll, they'll always, in any generation, they will always try to read this. This is the time. This is the time. But how can we then say this is the time? Okay? So most scholars and um, experts have tried to map this out, generation, kings, and time-wise. And I have, I'd just like to say quickly, um, Daniel 7 is closely, if you're interested, related to Revelation chapter 13. Okay? So if you read chapter 13, it's very closely related. And Revelation chapter 13 is where you read that the beast is a sign to a number, and that number is 666. And I don't know how many ways people have made this 666 to become someone's name or a person in history, the Antichrist. I don't think we need to go down that path. Uh, we can benefit from this text without having to do that. You see, in the comfort of our life story, you know, we're all comfortable, you see. The fact that we can sit here uh, with projector, with microphone, with Air conditioning, I wish, more heater than air conditioning at this time. Uh, but in the comfort of where we are today, we, 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 we can quickly try to dig into information that is becoming just intellect rather than something that will challenge us and speak to us and rebuke us. Oftentimes, we do not want God that rebuke us and change us? When, when God affirms us that God will prosper you, God will bless your marriage, God will bless your study, God will bless your children, we amen to that. But when there's a message that is hard 
for us that rebuke our lifestyle, our focus, our priority, we say, no, no, no. We want gods like that. But if, if that is the kind of God you want, then I, I don't think that's the kind of God you should worship. A God that is agree with you, that who is agree with you all the time, 100%, then he's no God. Then he's a dead God. Anything living, if you're married, this is easier. That's why marriage sometimes helps in the sense. If you're married, you know if your spouse is a living spouse, is a living person, there come a time where he or she does not agree with you. That things, what you're doing is silly. What you're doing is wrong. Now, if you have a spouse who is 100% agree with you all the time and approve of what you do all the time, let me tell you, that's your imagination. You need to wake up. You don't have a spouse like that. If our spouse who are imperfect are like that, how about God who is perfect? A God who deserves our worship cannot possibly 100% all the time agree with you or me. There will come a time where His Word will rebuke us, where we have to pause and we have to look inwardly. God help me to live in this way. I know I've been living far from your truth, but I want to live by your word. Now, how can Daniel 7 help us? It can help us to correct our narrow view of life from focusing on the, first, the first hundred years of our life to the first billion years of our life, perhaps, to eternity. We have to broaden our focus and our priority in our life. What else can it teach us? It can teach us about suffering. That suffering, looking at all these beasts that will, that will persecute believers, God's people, God is saying to us, suffering is to be expected. When you suffer, when you're being persecuted for your belief, in your school, in your workplace, by your prime minister, by your country, it is to be expected. When you can no longer practice what you believe freely, the Bible says it is to be expected. When people think that your belief is a bigot, bigotry, that your belief is intolerant, the Bible says that is to be expected. So the beast help us understand that suffering and persecution is part of God's plan. But no matter how dreadful they are, though, there is hope because that is not the end of the story. This is the, the little horn that came out that will devour everything. That is not the end of the story. There's another kingdom, it says, that will have no end. And this is our hope. Let's read from Daniel 26, 27. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, to God's people, to you and me. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. That's our hope. 
So who is the people of the saints of the Most High? Well, you and me, God's people. We will rule. Well, we may experience suffering today. I don't know how many of you experience suffering today and persecution in your life today. Daniel 7 brings comfort and assurance to us of this everlasting kingdom that is guaranteed. It is guaranteed because it has begun. And this kingdom will end, eventually will end all injustices that you are experiencing today. All the unfairness, all the injustice that you are experiencing in your life. When you see wicked people succeed ahead of you, all injustice will end. Third thing, Daniel's deity, Daniel's God. Daniel 7.13 says this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So in his vision, Daniel saw one like son of man and also called the Ancient of Days. What can we say about this figure? If we don't care about the other figures, all the beasts and the horns, we must care about this one because this one will rule forever. Anything that is forever... Pay attention to that. Anything that is temporary, not so important. Daniel 7, 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and language should serve him or worship him. His dominion is an everlasting king, dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He will establish an everlasting kingdom that will not be destroyed. His dominion and glory will be over all people and they should worship Him. Whether you believe in God, in Jesus or not, when He returns the second time, the Bible says every, everyone will bow down and worship. But the problem is, for some, it will be too late. Right now, people say, oh yeah, He's not God. I don't believe in all those things. I don't believe in Jesus. But when He returns... All knees will bow down, all tongue confess, but some, for some, it will be too late. Now, we must concern ourselves about this figure. I've alluded to it, but let's get on to it. Now, Jesus, many times, if you read the Bible and the gospel, many, many times, refer to himself as the Son of Man. Jesus had many names and many titles, but by far the most, most often, like over someone count, I did not, someone counts, actually 81 times Jesus was referred to or himself as Son of Man in the Gospel. Now let's read from Matthew, I'm jumped to Matthew now, the gospel. Matthew 26, 64, 68. I'm going to close. So Jesus was arrested and brought to Caiaphas, the high priest in that time. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, he, was, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have not now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserved death. 
they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him in the face, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Christ, the title here, you Messiah. Who is it that struck you? He said, you will see. Jesus said, you will see, son of man, seated at the right hand of power. Why did they slap him? Why, they, why such a reaction towards Jesus? Slap him and say, you blasphemy. You say you're Messiah. Who, who slapped you in the face? Why? Because the title son of man refers to Savior, the Messiah that has been prophesied long before. These are the Messiah, the son of man, is the person, the figure, the Savior that the people have been waiting all along for thousands of years to rescue them and deliver them of the, the cleanse of the kingdom of the kings, of human kings and human kingdom. And now you say you are that one, you are God, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. So they don't believe him. But we know that Jesus fulfilled that. How? After his death and resurrection. So not only he died, we're going to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection in a few weeks' time. But not only Jesus would die and crucified, and we can see all the historical evidence in that. But he was also ascended to heaven, and this is important. As he ascended to heaven, it says, he sits at the throne. He sits at the right hand of God. He sits at the judgment throne. So what does it mean for us today? I'm going to close with this. It means that God's kingdom is now here. It's now here today. As Jesus died and resurrected and ascended to heaven, Jesus' kingdom, kingdom of God, is here today. However, by the same time, it is not fully established. It's not fully consummated until his return. He said, I will come back. I will return. I'm preparing a place for you. One day I will come back for you. So we live in a time called the in-between time. The here, but the not yet. The kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet fully established. So it means we can still expect suffering, right? We can still expect suffering. It's here, but it's not yet. But also, it means we can overcome evil because the kingdom has been established. We can resist evil. We do not have to give in to evil. We can resist temptations because the kingdom of God is here. And also, it means that we can focus our life and our priority much wider than the first 100 years of our life. And finally, I want to say this, that your best life is not now. Your best life, don't try to make your best life now. Your best body is not now. Some of you, yeah, I know that. Uh, while others who have six-pack and everything say, what do you mean? This is my best life now. You know, I'm living the life uh, now. No, according to the Bible, if you believe in the Bible, if you believe in God, your best life is yet to come. And that is when Jesus returns, when there's no more suffering, when all cancers will be gone, when all those wicked people, all those injustices will be turned upside down. Let us pray.